This is Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, check out our other podcast, Fiat Vox, about the people and research at Berkeley. You can find all of our podcast episodes with transcripts and photos at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Hello, everyone. I'm Jeremy Geffen, Executive and Artistic Director for Cal Performances, and it is my great pleasure today to have with me two incredible people who uh, both have intersections with the world of Frankenstein. I'll start um, in alphabetical order with Carol Christ, who is the Chancellor of UC Berkeley, as well as a scholar of 19th century, particularly Victorian literature, and in uh, even further, um, a great fan of Frankenstein, the book, the novel. Um, and from Manual Cinema, one of their co-artistic directors, Drew Durer, uh, who is joining us from Chicago. And it is Drew's concept for Frankenstein that we will see in, uh, in the performance that will follow. Thank you both for being here. Uh, I, I had a, a, a first question for you, Drew, because th- this may lay some of the groundwork for, for what we, we talk about beyond this. Could you explain um, what is meant by the term cinematic shadow puppetry? <laughs> yeah, of course. So um, uh, the name of our company is Manual Cinema, and it, it also describes sort of the mission statement of the company, which is to create uh, something that looks like cinema, that looks like a movie by hand in front of you using handmade materials. Um, And uh, we've created a a technique called cinematic shadow puppetry, which uses old school overhead projectors, the same kind that you might've used in math class when you were a kid. And um, uh, uses a whole bank of overhead projectors to use slides, shadow puppets, and create something that doesn't look like a traditional children's shadow puppet play, but creates something that resembles an animated film uh, made live in front of you. Well, I, I'm, I'm very glad that you made the, uh, the introductory uh, couple of minutes of video that, that show how these techniques are put to use in a live performance, because uh, otherwise it, it could be mistaken for just incredible digital work. Um, and there, there's so much artistry, uh, manual artistry, pardon, pardon, um, that goes, goes into the work. Um, you said something in an interview, which I thought would be a, 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 something I'd throw to you both, which is that there are no good or evil characters in Frankenstein. We've always thought of the story as the story of two characters, Victor and the creature that he creates. Um, and it's also for us a, a dual twin story about um, creation and about abandonment. Um, and we always wanted to be able to uh, allow the audience to sympathize with Victor and to understand why he creates and, and even beyond the why of why he creates, but to feel the feeling of excitement 
ambition, energy that he feels when he brings something new into the world. And to also um, allow the audience to understand the immediate uh, remorse and regret that he feels at the moment that the creature, you know, opens his eyes and looks back at his creator. At the same time, we always wanted the audience to understand um, the violence of Victor's creature as the product of um, a series of circumstances uh, that, that brought him to violent acts. Um, so we all, to, to us, it's, it's Greek tragedy. Um, there aren't good and evil characters. There are only characters who make errors um, based on choices that they made up to that point. I think that's a wonderful way of talking about the book. I think the book is profoundly about good and evil. And I often think of the creature and Victor as almost a doppelganger. It's almost like they're a single person. And they keep switching roles. Which one is uh, Paradise Lost is a really important frame of reference for this book. And uh, Mary Shelley is always asking you, which one is Adam? Which one is Satan? Mm. Um, what responsibility does a God have for his creature? And if a creature is rejected, um, is he justified in the evil that he does afterwards? So it's a, a profound about a theory of good and evil. You know, I, I was thinking, hey, Carol, in, in, in your position as the, the chancellor of, uh, of an enormous research university about the uh, the prescience of the question that that Mary Shelley presents us um, there is something Frankenstein is trying to do something good or, or trying to do something that has benefit to um, to society but along with benefit comes well, uh, the possibility of either uh, uh, manipulation or um, use for for dangerous or reckless uses i'm thinking about the questions before us today regarding genetics and artificial intelligence and even in vitro fertilization yeah i think you're absolutely right that frankenstein has um, proven to be an enormously resonant text today there are a number of contemporary writers that have been rewriting frankenstein ian McEwan and machines like us or Jeanette Winderson has a wonderful book called Frankistein that is a double narrative, one of Mary Shelley writing Frankenstein, the other of a kind of parallel story of artificial intelligence. There's even a Frankenstein in Baghdad, which is a really chilling book. So I think it's just a, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a narrative for our time with the incredible capability through genetic technology, through artificial intelligence that mankind has, has, has obtained. We, we spoke a lot about um, social media companies and the internet when we were developing the show and about Silicon Valley and about how, you know, there are no ill-intentioned people in Silicon Valley or few ill-intentioned people in Silicon Valley, everyone means to do well. Um, and yet uh, uh, the internet companies like Facebook um, grow so large and so complex that even their creators are just beginning to understand what it is they've created and the consequences their creations have on the world. Yeah. I, 
I was um, wondering, Drew, as I watched this performance, which is so so wonderfully humane, um, even um, with regard to the monster, but especially with regard to to the creature. Um, what it what it means to be uh, envisioning a dramatic work about the, this novel in the uh, in the shadow of so many um, popular culture in well, vi- not necessarily interpretations but um, weights of uh, of images from Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. Um, I mean one of the reasons we were attracted to Frankenstein in the first place was because there are so many iterations of it. It felt like such a rich text. And there, there's, there's a whole Frankenstein text that lives outside of Mary Shelley's novel because it's, you know, the Frankenstein, the character has taken on a life of its own um, in the popular culture beyond like what she created. But when we first began looking at the title, um, we, uh, landed on Frankenstein because, you know, most of our work is nonverbal. It's told without language. And of course, one of the most famous nonverbal characters in popular culture is Frankenstein's monster. Um, uh, even though, ironically, as you know, Carol, uh, Frankenstein's monster is quite loquacious in the novel. He, he speaks very well for himself. Um, but, but we were looking for a, a good marriage between our form and some sort of content. And, and so um, have, doing our own interpretation on this famous nonverbal character of the creature was really exciting to us. Um, a- another aspect that felt really exciting was uh, when we landed on the title and went back to the novel, we were reminded about what an interesting structure the original novel has, the Gothic structure of the, the nested um, framing narratives. And um, we thought, oh, this is fascinating. This is a book that's told with these Russian nesting dolls in which each part of the book is narrated by a different character. One part is narrated by Victor. Another is narrated by the creature itself. Another by this ship's captain who finds Victor in the Arctic. Um, And we thought, what an interesting challenge to find a, to adapt um, narrative voice for a visual idiom. So we can't have someone narrating our story or we can't have different characters narrating our story. But what if we could create these different frames and create a different visual style for each one um, that would be like personal narrative voice. And so having all the different versions of Frankenstein, uh, the story was really helpful in that regard because across the history of American cinema, um, like every era of American cinema has produced its own Frankenstein. Um, it was one of the very first novels to be adapted by Thomas Edison's cinema company, like a very simple 10 minute silent film of Frankenstein. And of course the 1930s James Whale version and the uh, uh, lots of different versions up through the 60s, 70s and to today. And so it was really rewarding to draw on each of these eras, especially silent film and kind of stitch together our own Frankenstein's monster um, from all these different cultural tropes that have been produced over the past 200 years of Frankenstein. 
Yeah, I think that's so interesting. Is one of the things that I loved about um, about your um, your your version of Frankenstein is there's almost a meta theatrical element to it in which uh, the um, the crafting of these puppets and these silhouettes, the shadow puppets, is almost an analogy to what Victor is doing in creating the uh, the creature itself. There's a really interesting um, uh, point about the the history of Frankenstein. By the time Mary Shelley returns to London, which is five years after Frankenstein is published, there are five versions of Frankenstein on the stage. So it almost immediately becomes this really popular theatrical property. And the argument's been made, I think, really interestingly, that one of the things that draws filmmakers to Frankenstein is it's a kind of analogy um, that Victor's creation of the creature to the art of cinema itself. Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, and, and that ties into some, something that, um, that Manuel Cinema's Frankenstein also creates, which it, and another, uh, a bigger Russian nesting doll. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, I love, I always call them not Russian nesting dolls, but Chinese boxes. And you've created a Chinese box around the Chinese boxes of Mary Shelley's novel with the story of Mary Shelley herself and her creation of Frankenstein. I thought that was absolutely wonderful and um, wonderful in your connection of um, Mary Shelley's um, trauma about um, giving birth and about babies dying um, and um, as, as analogous, indeed, one of the, the m- motivations to her imagination to create the story. Yeah, from the very beginning, we knew uh, we wanted to include Mary Shelley's biography um, in the show somehow. And actually, the very first draft of the show had so much about Mary Shelley that um, we had to cut so much because her life is really fascinating. And, um, you know, just like briefly, a couple of interesting things about her was that her mother is Mary Wollstonecraft, um, the 18th century um, feminist and, and thinker. Um, and uh, Wollstonecraft actually died shortly after childbirth, giving birth to Mary Shelley. Um, and uh, uh, she also had this um, uh, half sister, Fanny, um, who uh, committed suicide during the writing of Frankenstein. Um, uh, of course, her, her husband, Percy Shelley, um, who uh, she was writing around Europe with at the time uh, that she wrote Frankenstein along with Lord Byron. But the, the detail from the biography that stuck out to us was um, the story of uh, the birth of her first daughter, Clara, who died shortly after Mary gave birth to her. And she wrote a journal entry shortly after the death in which she, Mary had a nightmare in which she uh, laid hands on the dead child and rubbed it and basically rubbed it back to life. And when we read that, we thought, well, this is fascinating because uh, I don't think we'd ever thought of Frankenstein as Frankenstein is a story of a lot of things, but it it didn't strike us as a story about grief um, and loss and, and putting that in the mix with everything else that's going on in the original novel felt really interesting to us thinking of it as a novel of grief. Um, And also of course, um, introducing the idea of um, motherhood and childbirth 
back into the book, which it, it feels like the story really opens up when you read the novel in that way. And it felt really interesting to us that Mary wrote this um, novel, you know, basically like throughout a postpartum period. Um, so th- those were the, those were the elements that struck us as really interesting and why we wanted to include Mary's story alongside or around um, the original Frankenstein story. Yeah, I think that's really profound about about Frankenstein. One of the things that I emphasize when I teach Frankenstein is how young Mary Shelley was. I mean, she was 18 and 19 when she writes this. And she's living in Europe in this kind of house. They all go to Perspicy Shelley, Gordon Lord Byron, um, uh, Byron's um, uh, physician, and uh, Claire Clermont, who Byron is having an affair with. And they're young and they're reckless and... um, And yet Mary Shelley's life is one of having lost this first child, had a second child. She's nursing when she's at this this, um, home in Geneva. And so, and that the the just, you know, um, reinforcing what you just said, when um, uh, Victor Frankenstein in the novel falls asleep right after he finishes creating the creature, he has a dream about um, his dead mother walking, or Elizabeth walking through the streets, who's his fiancée. He grasps Elizabeth, and she turns into the the skeleton of his dead mother in his arms. So it's just, it's a book that's just haunted by death, and I think haunted by grief. I think you're right. Yeah, you're right. You're totally right. That, uh, the the dream, it, it, uh, I'm going to mess up the, the phrase, livid with the pallor of, of death. Yeah. Uh, your point, Carol, about uh, uh, Mary Shelley's youth um, is is extraordinary because she, she went on to write an, an, another six novels. Uh, she was incredibly accomplished. But at the, the point that, that, uh, that the book w- was published I, I don't believe her name was attached to it. Yeah, that's right. It's by anonymous. And there's a big um, argument in the scholarly literature about how important um, uh, uh, Percy Shelley was to the revisions in, uh, in the novel. I, one of the things I loved about your, uh, about your um, uh, version of Frankenstein is uh, the sense of the marital dynamics, or I guess they weren't married at the point, but the dynamics between Mary Shelley and Perspish Shelley that she's, you know, trying to get his attention and he's just writing away. And I thought that was really well done. It's a fascinating relationship on its own and is enough material for uh, an entire novel or story itself, for sure. Obviously, this would this is not an unfamiliar concept to um, to to opera lovers, but it took it took me a little while to realize that uh, that all of the actors, um, whether uh, the roles are male or female, are played by by women. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask Drew how, how you arrived at that that decision. Well, it, it's it's a little bit of a, a marriage between the material and, and the company's mission. Um, manual cinema, uh, all of our shows, um, for the most part, um, uh, either portray female characters um, as protagonists or uh, draw on work by female authors. Um, 
it's it's maybe not the most visible um, part of our mission, but it's it is a sort of a core part of our mission. Um, and when we got a hold of Frankenstein and and discovered all these um, themes and ideas and motifs of of motherhood, and we really thought about how do we put Mary Shelley back into the story. Which, by the way, when you read the novel, it really is full of male characters. I mean, almost exclusively, except for you know Elizabeth and his mother most notably. Um, and so we just wanted to find any kind of way where we could put, um, like to, to remind the audience as much as possible that this is written by a woman and there are, there are certain themes and motifs in Frankenstein that you might've missed if you hadn't been thinking about maternity or, or childbirth before. Yeah, and I love the fact that you made that you um, had the same actor play both Mary Shelley and Victor Frankenstein because it really makes it clear that that Victor Frankenstein is expressing so much of her own, you know, desires, dreams, traumas uh, in, in in the character. Yeah, a, a lot of people, you know, think that Victor Frankenstein is is just a stand-in for her husband Percy, and, and I'm sure, and I think there is a totally a valid critique there, but it, what that loses is that Mary is a creator as well. And, and she has felt these things. She's felt the thrill of creation. She's felt the regret of ambition and all those things that Victor feels as an author. Well, um, I, it, before two such um, deeply knowledgeable individuals as yourself on the subject of, of Frankenstein, I feel embarrassed to admit that my first exposure um, beyond cartoons was Young Frankenstein, which I've watched. (laughs) 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 Absolutely. It was this um, production that was the impetus for me to finally read the novel and to, um, to recognize that so much of what we think we know about the, about the novel is, um, is not, it's not an accurate ref- reflection of what what was in uh, in the text itself, and that is actually one of the themes of Cal Performance's uh, current season, Fact or Fiction. So, um, uh, I, I think we could probably talk for another hour or so about about Frankenstein and about your fantastic work, Drew, uh, but. We're going to call it quits here. Um, and I, I wanted to say a great thank you to you, Drew Deere um, from Manual Cinema and to Carol Chris uh, of UC Berkeley for making the time for this conversation. And we look greatly forward to the performance. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, thank you so much for presenting Frankenstein, Jeremy. And, and Carol, good luck with your class. I have to say that um, uh, a, a big reason why I really love Frankenstein, the novel, is because of an introduction to romanticism class that I took as a freshman in college. Uh And, and the way that Frankenstein was taught to me, like stuck with me all through the years and, and was so important to me putting up this production. So I I hope your students, uh, I'm sure your students will feel as inspired as I was. Well, that's wonderful to hear. And thank you so much for such a spectacular uh, um, theatrical event about Frankenstein. You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley News podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. 
You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts. Thank you.